This is On Location. I'm Joe Mamlin. Today's episode comes to you on location from Massachusetts, California, Indiana, Georgia, Maryland, and Alaska. But first, On Location is produced by the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Tim Leitner and me. You can find the podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Google, iHeartRadio, and many more. This episode was hosted by Tim Leitner and Keith Lewis, and the topic is how the courts responded to the pandemic. On this important topic, we welcome a wide variety of practitioners and researchers for this discussion. Joining us today is Jolie Shepik, Susan Smith, Terry Jones, Elaine Sorensen, and Ethan McKinney. This excellent panel discusses the many creative ways that courts around the country addressed the pandemic and the changing needs of the public they serve. It's going to be a great show, so stick around, and we'll be right back. Welcome to On Location, NCA's premier podcast experience and opportunity to engage in conversation that spur curiosity, reflection, and learning. On today's program, I'm joined by my co-host, Keith Lewis, I'm Tim Leitner, and I'm with the Alaska Child Support Services Division in Anchorage, Alaska. And before we go too far, let's have Keith introduce himself and share a little bit about himself. Thank you so much, Tim. So a little bit about me. I am a marketer with Stellarware Corporation, a child support vendor, and I've been in this space for just a few years. It's actually funny. I started in fashion after graduating from the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York and worked there for a number of years in the city menswear apparel primarily but you know after a while the excitement and the novelty of you know the things that come with working in fashion like receiving uh, designer samples or working behind the scenes at fashion week you know once that novelty wore off i just felt like something greater was kind of you know lacking so when the opportunity to come work in child support presented itself i um i jumped to the chance it's it's not every day you get to apply your skill set in areas that are actually fulfilling and i can say it has been i can honestly say that i enjoy what i do uh, including being here today it's it's a true honor and i thank you again for having me Great. Thanks, Keith. You're also involved in NCS Child Support Communique newsletter, better known as the CSQ, and getting some great folks in the child support community together, some who are researchers to write an article about how the courts responded to the pandemic. Can you share a little bit about how you got this group together and what did you do? Of course. So several months ago, the prospect of working with the uh, with the research committee was presented during a CSQ meeting, and I did not hesitate to take the lead. You know, I think that this is something that applies to all industries, but when it comes to research organizations or academia or think tanks, there tends to be this this general disconnect between the research that is being done and the industries that can actually benefit from it. And SIA is a unique consortium in that it provides a channel for the flow of research to the operational levels where the actual work is being done. 
you know, I felt that helping produce an article for the CSQ and collaboration or partnership with the research committee would be the perfect pairing to accomplish this. I also felt that the collaboration would be a good opportunity to showcase the important work that the NC research crew does and, you know, also give their committee a platform to achieve a higher level of visibility. In saying that, in terms of actual article development, I did nothing, right? The panelists here, they did everything. I'm just along for the ride. But having said that, why don't we start with some introductions? If we could, Jolie, I'll pass it to you and you can pass to the next from there. Thank you so much. My name is Jolie Shepik, and I'm the co-chair along with Jane Denor for the NCEA Research Subcommittee. And our subcommittee provides a forum for NCEA members who are interested in research to discuss you know, different research issues specific to the child support community and in general, human services surrounded around the family and children. It also serves as a venue for researchers to have input on their studies and survey designs. So we, we have a lot of opportunity to do informal peer review. And then we also create research products such as this article for the larger NCEA community. And so periodically we will put out a white paper or an article, or in this case, the CSQ on topics that are current and relevant to the child support community. Sometimes they are more policy focused. Other times they're more process focused around what the different child support offices are doing around the country and sharing those best practices and insights. And other times it's a literature review on current research findings. And we are very lucky because we have a large subcommittee with over 40 members of esteemed folks throughout the child support community. And we have lots of subgroups that work on these different projects. And specifically today, the authors of this article talking about how the courts responded to the pandemic are some of our I, most fun and engaging members of our subcommittee, Susan and Terry and Elaine and Ethan. We, we are so lucky to have you here today to talk about how you put this article together and the insights around how the courts have been affected by the pandemic. And with that, I'll pass it on to the authors to talk more about themselves and the article. Well, I can start. My name's Elaine Sorensen. I've been a member of this committee uh, for quite some number of years, and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Jolie and Jane do a great job of, of uh, leading our group, and we always have very interesting meetings. A couple months ago, we were asked to write this article for the communique, and the committee decided to take it on as one of our projects, and uh, people volunteered to work on it. And then uh, as a group, the, the 50 of us on the call decided on sort of what topics might be of use to talk about. And we focused in on operations during the COVID period, during the pandemic. And then uh, the, the, the few of us who decided to uh, join together and work on this specific article then narrowed that topic down. And so that's how the process worked. I'll pass it on to uh, Susan. Hi, I'm Susan Smith. I am the Intergovernmental 40 Program Liaison for the state of Indiana, and I do all things intergovernmental. I've been at the state level for 32 years now. This is my first time working with the research committee, and I must say it has been a wonderful experience, and I encourage more people to become involved. Terry? Yes, I'm Terry Jones. I'm the manager of the Georgia Central Registry and Child Support. I straight out 26 years, but I got enough to where I can be close to retiring now. I really enjoy where I'm at. I have been in all levels. I have done from intake agent to establishment to enforcement, rev mod, policy specialist, supervisor, manager. So I've been through all of it. I enjoy being on the uh, research committee. I think this is my second year on here and I have really learned a lot. And I think I have grown a lot, and I think I've been able to take back what we have shared in this committee 
back to my agency and I think it's helped us in a lot of ways. And this article was very interesting to kind of read together and see how courts and from across the nation struggled and, and tried to uh, overcome the barriers during the COVID and try to continue their services with court. And now I'll pass it on to Ethan. Thank you. I am Ethan McKinney. I am currently the Child Support Director for the St. Joseph County Prosecutor's Office in uh, South Bend, Indiana. Indiana is a state where child support is carried out by local prosecutors who sign a cooperative agreement with the state of Indiana. So my boss, the elected prosecutor, signs such an agreement and we all report to him. Uh, in my role as child support director, I oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the child support division for him. I supervise all of our staff, legal and non-legal. Uh, and I began my career as a deputy prosecuting attorney, uh, conducting child support hearings in the courtroom, did hearings every day for about seven years uh, before getting this promotion. And I've been serving as child support director now for 10 years. Great. Well, welcome, everybody. I'm glad, so glad you're here and joining us today and on location. So, Julie, let's talk a little bit about the scope of your research and what the, the research team found. You talk about in your article that judicial systems throughout the U.S. are slow to embrace change, particularly when it comes to technology and how the COVID-19 pandemic made changes really a necessity. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure, I will pick it off and then I'll pitch it over to the authors who dug deep into this issue around technology. And, you know, we think about modern times and our apps and our smartphones and our tablets that everyone is very technologically adept and connected. We have Wi-Fi everywhere in every restaurant practically all over the country. And yet I think our our technology bandwidth, <laughs> no pun intended, was tested when the pandemic really um, came into force and the shutdown started happening in March 2020. And we were really tested around our equipment. What equipment do people have? Training. Do people know how to use the equipment and the software? Literally bandwidth. So internet bandwidth, Wi-Fi, cable bandwidth, all of that was tested. But then I think the thing that was tested the most in regards to technology was culture and habits and how we adjust to meeting virtually. It has to do with a different type of interpersonal interaction, different mannerisms, different interpretations of behaviors, different levels of decorum. I think that the cultural barrier was one of the toughest to overcome because it's a, a little bit more abstract. So how do we maintain decorum with court hearings when people are calling in or over the computer on a video co conference with the courts and, you know, maybe their children are running around in the background making a lot of noise and they're distracted and they tell the judge or the commissioner, can you hold on? I've got to go grab my child. That would not happen in a court setting. And so how do we balance meeting the needs of our parents where they're at, getting those orders established, while also maintaining a little bit of organization and structure around the court hearing process? So I would say that when looking across the country at the, at the different ways that the courts responded to it, I would say that that's something that everyone had in common and responded to very differently. And, and with that, I'd like the, the writers to discuss what they observed as, as they dug deeper into this issue. Elaine or Terry? I know in particular, in the one particular circuit that I, I reached out to, and of course, in reading and throughout this, it's the same thing. You know, it depends on your social economic in that area too as well. Our state agency was real good about getting laptops to the workers so they could work from home and uh, have uh, the uh, Wi-Fi and stuff. But when you sit there in court or remote, a lot of the uh, non-custodial parents or custodial parents didn't have access to be able to do things virtually. And that was a big, you know, how do we provide that? And that was one of the biggest areas that we have and still trying to figure out how to do 
you know, we thought we might have it covered because we have a lot of online stuff and access that they can, uh, our customers can access. But in the end, the court venue, and like as uh, Jolie said, having where the people that we've had to serve the need to come to court to be able to sign documents and discuss, this area where this office was at just was very rural. A lot of agriculture and transportation was an issue to begin with anyway, but then trying to get to where they can sit there and to uh, uh, participate in the virtual court hearings was another issue that really threw up a barrier. So those are things to how we handle that, how we set that up, things that I know they're looking at now, and to do the electronic signatures. Some of that stuff is that we're still building on on that. So that's a lot of that kind of came out to say that's with nationwide. There were a lot of issues like that nationwide, but it was interesting how, as we went along, we're trying to figure out how to uh, overcome those and to uh, improve our process because we know that we're not going to be the same like we were before the pandemic. It's going to be changing what it's going to look like. That's still developing. So maybe one of you could tell us a little bit about the December 2021 peer report that was mentioned in your article and, and how that um, ties in or has an impact to um, to this research on, on responding to the pandemic. Yeah, I'll be happy to respond to that. The uh, Pew report, we found that we once we started, we decided to focus in on the courts and how they responded to the pandemic. Uh, we did a, a search on the internet to look for articles and we found the Pew report and it was a gold mine. It came out just a, a few months ago and the Pew Center for Research examined all 50 states um, and examined their emergency orders and how many courts had actually issued emergency orders after the pandemic was announced and it started in March 2020. And they found that all of the states had issued emergency orders and they actually documented those in this report. The Pew report is nice because it focuses on civil courts, which is where child support takes place and examines all 50 states, their emergency orders. And then it also did a nice review of uh, over 50 articles on court adaptations during the pandemic and summarized what they found in those articles. So it was a, a very nice summary piece for us to include in our article. That Their key takeaways were that of course, as, as people already noted, the courts were very responsive. They had to be because they were had to close down. The emergency orders were to only deal with essential functions. And so basically everybody closed down for at least a little bit. And how are they going to give uh, access to the courts, to the public? Um, how are they going to provide court services when the doors were closed? And so they responded by... Uh, opening up through virtual means, through virtual hearings. They also did a lot of adaptations around digital services. So they introduced digital signatures, digital notarization. And this is all summarized in this report to the extent to which the 50 states were able to adopt these digital practices as well as virtual hearings, the extent to which those were adopted countrywide, uh, nationwide. That was the key takeaway was that there was very, very quick adaptations. And then the second key takeaway was that most of the courts that were interviewed in this literature that they reviewed indicated that the participation among individuals was higher in the virtual hearing setting than it had been prior to the pandemic because people didn't have to come to the court, didn't have to take time out of work to uh, participate so people were able to access the virtual hearings at a much higher rate than people had anticipated and even higher than it was in the pandemic. So people were very positive about the participation of litigants, of individuals who come into the court and were very pleased with that participation rate. So that was another key takeaway from this report that we found. Yeah, thank you so much, Elaine. I f I'm finding all of this so interesting. I feel like we, um, I feel like we, you know, address the challenges that the courts have faced and and continue to face with respect to adopting the new technology. And we touched on, you know, some of the outcomes. But more specifically, I'm curious to know, and this is a question for uh, anyone: Are there any expectations that remote proceedings may become a permanent fixture? for state courts in the near future? 
Well, I think that that's to be determined. There, there has been a very positive response. Uh, and so many courts are adopting virtual hearings, but there are pros and cons to where, where to place the virtual hearings or which proceedings are most adaptable to a virtual process and which ones do need to be in person. And so there seems to be some sorting through of where virtual hearings has the best advantage and where in-person has the, the greater advantage. And that discussion is taking place and there's a research being um, undertaken by various courts around the country to try and answer that question of how do we fit in virtual hearings? Will we see that it's positive? Where, how does it complement? Where is it best fit into our proceedings as we go forward? And my impression is that every court is making different decisions on this. So there's not gonna be one uniform answer across the country. Uh, it, and it's going to depend on each state and what their experiences are. Thank you so much for that. So I know in the article, the CSQ article, you mentioned a study by Dr. Richard Suskind. And I was wondering if somebody could speak to that. What was this article about or what were some of the talking points from Dr. Suskind? Well, Dr. Suskind is a British uh, specialist in this area uh, and it is well known uh, in this area. He's uh, an expert on access to justice and on technology. And so his article focuses in on the extent to which technology is being adopted during the pandemic. And as he and everyone else notices, that the courts are responding very rapidly during the pandemic. He's a British author, so he takes actually an international perspective and actually focuses quite a bit on the UK system. Uh, and finds there that they too are responding very rapidly to the in the pandemic to in, uh, incorporate virtual hearings and digital tasks. Uh, so there's a, gr a quick adaptation going on. The question about virtual hearings, he is a big proponent of virtual hearings. He sees it as a way to increase access for individuals to participate. And so He's very interested in, to, in examining the extent to which courts are moving in that direction because he sees it as a, a positive direction. He concludes that, and I think all of us are, and that you know makes sense. We're still in the transition period, so courts are testing this out to see if it works for them and beginning the process of incorporating virtual hearings. That we still have a long way to go. That's. Dr. Suskin's conclusion is we have a long way to go to fully adapt to and incorporate virtual hearings across the full spectrum of uh, court proceedings. He sees this as a good step uh, in a positive direction, and but we need more. We hope he hopes that we continue in the journey towards increasing virtual hearings as part of the process, court process. Great, thank you. And Susan, maybe you can talk a little bit about what are some of the benefits of these remote hearings that Dr. Suskin kind of laid out? Yes, it's definitely making it easier for participants to access, have access to the courts and the court proceedings. Anecdotally, we have noticed that there are a lot more people participating and showing up for court because they don't have to take the entire day off or a half a day off at their own expense to come to court. They're able to take just a couple hours off or take a lunch break and, and attend their court proceeding. And, and because they have, they feel more empowered because they have been uh, engaged in the process, we have better outcomes and they stick to their support orders and they, they pay them. So we, are, we definitely have noticed that number of our courts are looking into at least some staying virtual or having that ability in the future and that aspect staying for the future. What about, what about, and I know we touched on this briefly, specifically with respect to core participants, you know, having access to the technology, but what are some, or what are some more of the challenges that were on earth during your research with respect to core participants? I guess an example would be, right, privacy or security. Was that something that came up at all? Yeah. The challenges that were described in these reports focused on internet access. And so this varies, especially in rural areas, but uh, internet access 
is going to limit, is going to be a challenge. So that um, that's the key one that's mentioned. But also they talk about is about the need for interpreters, which wasn't necessarily incorporated in this the quick pandemic response period. And but it's clearly going to be a need going forward is uh, having interpreters available. Also, uh, just disabled individuals are have you know have difficulty accessing uh, older people who are not as used to um, the, using technology um, are having challenges. So there are subgroups of individuals who weren't accessing as easily as. Uh, other groups. So those were noted as well. It's very insightful. I mean, it makes sense, right? But it's very, it's not things that, you know, you think of right away when, when you're talking about courts and the pandemic and, you know, migrating to, um, to a virtual setting. It's all very insightful. I think timing had a big role in that. So when you think about when you build a courthouse, you think about all the staffing that you'll need, all the ADA requirements that you must meet, ensuring that it's accessible to everyone. And it's a very long planning process when you do bricks and mortar, right? And or when you make any new service offering. The response to the pandemic was extremely rushed. And so it was moving at a much faster pace to set things up than what anyone is, is necessarily accustomed to when you have a new service offering or a new venue, whatever that venue might be, whether it's bricks and mortar or virtual. And then the, the question around how permanent is this and how much should we invest in it was always there. So if, if you think something is going to be permanent, then you backtrack and you address those issues that you didn't have time to address before. But if you think it's going to go away, you know, we were all hoping, oh, the pandemic's going to go away any day now, and we'll go back to the way things used to be. Everyone talked a lot about going back to normal or back to the way things were before the pandemic. Um, but here we are, uh, you know, almost exactly two years later, and I think we've departed from that idea of going back to the way things were before the pandemic and now saying, okay, if these things are permanent, we have to make the same thoughtful decisions that we would have made if we had a long time to plan for it. And we were offering something new that we thought was a benefit or that was voluntary as opposed to thrust upon us by the circumstances of the world. Yeah. You know, in your article, you also talked about how child support programs and their judicial partners responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. And you mentioned four in particular states, Michigan, Virginia, well, New York City is not a state, but it might as well be one, and also Wisconsin, and talked about how at ERICSA 2021 at that conference, it was focused on e-filing and virtual hearings. Can you just touch briefly on some of the issues that they found? Well, those, those workshops were very interesting to listen to. Uh, the experiences of the states and the city, New York City, were quite varied. New York City seemed to be the least equipped to adapt to a digital orientation and a virtual courtrooms. They didn't have any kind of e-filing system before the pandemic. And so they tried, they did develop something quickly, but it's not really what we would call an e-filing system where you can file forms and it gets documented in a, in a database. This is just somewhere where you can submit a form. It's not a, a database. It's a, just a submission of a form. So they were able to start this development of a submission process, um, and that was started, but they still have a long way to go even on an e-filing system for the court. Other states on, with regard to e-filing were in a very different place. Wisconsin was just now beginning to incorporate e-filing within their child support data system. And that was much easier for their, their child support workers to use their own child support system to submit things to the court rather than go to the court's e-filing system. And so that was yet another discussion point, which just states and cities were in very different places with regard to e-filing, which was very interesting. And then on the, the virtual hearings, I mean, New York City is just so large and it, 
it had the backlog is started it closed down for a little while and it just the backlog was uh, just accumulated very rapidly and the, the courts in New York City were closed for quite some time they just weren't ready they didn't have laptops for their staff they didn't I mean it was just very difficult to access the equipment that they needed they hadn't had any experience with getting licenses for Zoom or any of these other sources of ways of communicating virtually. So they had to go get licenses, which took time. I mean, everything, given how large New York City is and how many people there are, it just was just a very slow process for them. And they were still really struggling when that workshop took place. And this was about a year ago. Um, they're, they're clearly trying hard to uh, move as fast as they can. But just given the sheer volume of the work that they had and the, the limited um, technology that they had prior to the pandemic really inhibited their ability to move forward. And so New York was on one extreme, whereas your, the Michigan, for example, was on the other extreme. And Indiana I, uh, was also in these conversations. And um, Michigan seemed to be much more able to adapt more quickly, having virtual hearings within the first month of the pandemic, for example. So there was a a wide spectrum on uh, ability to respond to the pandemic using technology on these workshops. And that was very interesting. Yeah, when you hear about what other states, what their struggles were and stuff, then you you think our state's struggling. Then I realize and look at what Georgia did um, that Oh, we we had some things there in place that really was great to have already in place. And okay, this is where we're at. We know this starting point here. Where do we go from here? So this is a good time, based on the article that was written, to know, okay, what do we take away? What worked? What didn't? And um, and then where do we go from there? What do we already have in place that, and how can we build on it? You know, because uh, a lot of the courthouses that you know, I have been in and deal with, they're around for a long time. So all the electronic stuff is retrofit in there. And that doesn't always work sometimes real good, but Georgia has been e-filing for a long time. So we had that in place. But again, when you sit there and compare what the different, some are similar barriers and some are different, you realize, okay, this is where we're at. Where do we go from here? And I think this article helps to open up the conversation for each state to say, okay, what do we have? What do we need to go? And I think because of UFC 2008, where it made it so that the the non-resident party could appear telephonically, a number of courts were thinking, well, this won't be too bad because we are already equipped to do that. But just to have one person appear telephonically and then to have to go to everybody appearing remotely, it was a much larger leap than they at first thought. And I think this uncovered a lot of those shortcomings, which they've, they've definitely been able to, to fix and going forward should be able to adapt much more easily if little random outages occur in the future. Thank you. So also profiled in the article, and I found these to be very uh, interesting, were two two case studies, right, of two state counties, two child support offices, examples where they were able to uh, be agile, quickly pivot, and adapt to the new infrastructure that, that we were kind of forced to adopt as a result of the pandemic. One of those case studies, or vignettes, if you will, for lack of a better word, was out of Kern County, California. So I encourage all listeners to read that piece. Another one was from St. Joseph County Prosecutor's Office in Indiana. So Ethan, I've got a question for you. Uh, Would you share how St. Joseph County Prosecutor's Office responded to the pandemic in terms of its partnership with the courts? Yes, thank you, Keith. And I, I really am excited by, by the whole research paper because a lot of the things everyone's already talked about are the same things that, that we worked through in St. Joe County. The first thing I would just preface is we were set up 
a little bit technologically to be prepared for this in that we are already a paperless office. We have our own paperless solution, which we use for uh, office management and tasking. Uh, and that's also how the deputies review court filings. Uh, we file electronically in all the courts we work in, uh, two different systems, but our attorneys were already able to review pleadings uh, electronically and our staff submitted those pleadings electronically. Uh, so switching to doing that from home was very easy for our staff because they already had the ability to review pleadings uh, and file them with the courts uh, using the court's electronic system. Uh, the other thing we have is just a great relationship with all the courts we operate in. We do circuit court in Central County. We also have several superior courts that hear divorce cases. And then probate court is our primary partner. They do all the paternities. And through an arrangement with circuit and superior court, they also hear all Title IV-D cases post-dissolution. Uh, and circuit specifically hears all of our UIFSA cases that do arise out of a marriage. Uh, and they allow, once those cases are registered here, uh, we also hear those down at, at probate court. So having a good relationship with the court allowed us to, to pivot pretty quickly. Um, we did have a court shutdown. We closed uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, as I think everybody did. Uh, but through our partnership with the court, uh, we installed protective barriers in our office and in the courtrooms, as well as moving desks around in the courtroom so that the public and our staff could feel safer uh, to come back to court and do face-to-face -face hearings. Uh, so we did, you know, high uh, health and sanitation style hearings with uh, social distancing uh, for a while. And that really did work great. Um, but then as the, the positivity rates went back up uh, in Central County, our, our judges made a decision that they wanted to go to all virtual hearings. Um, so we partnered with the court to do Zoom hearings. And one of the things our, our judge at probate court in particular really likes is the way we do a high volume of hearings effectively and efficiently. Uh, and he wanted us to try to do the same thing when we're doing it on Zoom, we, you know, we use the technology as a tool. We don't want the technology to tell us what to do. Um, so our practice was to have a caseworker, a deputy prosecuting attorney, the, the Title IV-D magistrate, his court reporter, and then both the, the parents all participate on the Zoom. Our deputies conducted the hearing the same way they would have done in person. Uh, and the caseworker, it's really an active role for our caseworkers. They're participating by paying attention to the questions that are asked, preparing a child support worksheet as testimony comes in. Uh, and then at the end of the testimony, they're able to share their screen with the judge uh, and the parties so that everyone can see the child support worksheet. And I know one of our earlier panelists talked about the issue with e-signing. And in Indiana, the trial court rules do include that attestation by the parties that the document is valid can count as a signature. So we would have the parties testify that yes, the child support worksheet has been completed with the information I provided. Uh, and then after the hearing, our staff would uh, print a PDF to an electronic basket, email that to the clerk's office, and the clerk would then upload it into the case so that the child support worksheet could be attached to the judge's order uh, after the judge completed it. So it really did work very well. Uh, the concerns about uh, translation is always, a, is always a, a little more difficult when you do that by Zoom. Indiana Supreme Court administration does provide for a, a by phone translation service. Uh, so we are able to get a translator in any language on the phone for the parties. But now obviously that does add to the degree of difficulty for the attorneys and, and judges doing those hearings because now you've added another person uh, to the Zoom uh, for translation purposes. But we were able to, to service those members of the public as well uh, using that service provided by state court administration. Is that how you also did modifications? It sounds like you were describing the order establishment process. That, mm -hmm. that same uh, process worked for order modifications? Yes, the same process did work for order modifications. When we 
went to just Zoom hearings, we really were focused, as your research showed, on the essential duties of getting support orders established. Indiana is a judicial state, so we have to have a judge get those orders. So we were doing establishment hearings, and then we also did a lot of modification hearings at that time for folks who found themselves unable to work, uh, you know, in part due to the pandemic, uh, had a change in income. So we did modification the same way uh, using that, that process. And families were able to submit documents okay? Yeah, our caseworkers would just ask them to, when they got our subpoena, and since they weren't going to physically come to court, if they could just email any documents they wanted to the caseworker, we would then store those to our electronic case management system. And the attorneys could then open those in the courtroom or, or you know, while they were conducting the, the virtual hearing. And the uh, caseworkers could also share those via the share screen if the judge happened to want to see it. Uh, but the pe- people, for the most part, were able to email us the documents we, we needed. And so you found your, your families were able to, they had access to email, they were able to get onto the Zoom calls okay? Yeah. The the funny thing we had with the public is, you know, if you if you give them this option, they generally are able to do it. So most people were able to to participate by Zoom. What we found is some people did have an internet issue, but they easily had a family member or friend whose house they could go to. Uh, South Bend Schools parked their school buses throughout the city so that the kids could access free Wi-Fi, which meant that members of the public who needed to use court services could access that free Wi-Fi too, uh, or they went to the public library. Uh, so so getting on the internet was not a problem. Um, what we really had, which is similar to all of us, I imagine, in our real lives, we had those members of the public who were just nervous about using Zoom and needed someone to talk them through how to log on and participate in a in a virtual hearing. And so the caseworkers really became like uh, a little bit of tech support for the for the parents just to make sure they did know how to do it. And then lastly, we always included a, a phone number so that if they just they weren't comfortable doing any of that, they could call in and we would do it like a telephonic hearing. How many ended up being telephonic? Was that how do you have a good in a sense like half of your were telephonic or ten percent or how often was telephonic ended up you being used? I would say ten percent or less. I most people could figure out how to do Zoom, um, but but some were uncomfortable with it, so they did call in. But for the most part, they were all able to access it via the virtual option. And how many people didn't show up? I mean, I mean, you know, like it just didn't work. I mean. The Zoom didn't, or or phone, that just, it just didn't work. I mean, our show rates were slightly better with uh, virtual than they are with in-person. We also agreed with the court that we were not going to default anyone who didn't show up for virtual hearings, and we were not going to issue any warrants uh, for anyone who didn't show up to virtual hearings. We just picked a new date four to five months in the future so that we could do that as an in-person hearing um, and that we wouldn't, you know, default someone or issue a warrant for someone who maybe they did have a technology issue that we just didn't know about. Is that still your practice today? Or how are, can you talk about how, how it's going today? Yeah. So we, we are back to um, full in-person court at this time. Some of our courts did like Zoom hearings and are using them as your research indicated for uh, some matters, and they're having the same discussion that I think is going on throughout the country. Uh, If this is a simple hearing where it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a person to come to court and maybe pay an attorney to travel to and from court, some of our circuit and superior court partners are then setting those as as Zoom hearings, uh, and then just anecdotally from you know my friends in the private bar, they've even had their clients now will ask them, "Hey, can that just be a Zoom hearing?" Because they realize uh, what Susan said: I don't have to miss work, and they also know financially I don't have to pay my lawyer to go to the courthouse for the whole morning. If we can just do a twenty-minute Zoom hearing, I can pay for that. It it, it allows people to have a little more control over uh, the way their cases are being handled. But for the your child support matters, are they are you all back in person? Yeah, in probate court, we're back in person, which is where we do the bulk of our hearings. When we first went back, we did a staggered 
time so that people weren't all showing up at one time. Uh, we're traditionally, we did what we call a cattle call where everyone got the subpoena for the same time. So when we were just sort of still uncomfortable about people being face to face, we staggered the times, uh, which was great. Uh, except for if, if, the 8 a.m. subpoena parties don't show up, then the judge is sitting around and it, it can feel like we're not making good use of court time. Um, so now that we're a little bit more comfortable being back face to face, we are just doing a regular uh, court time subpoena. But we know that we have that option to do staggered times in the future if, if something like this were to happen again. What practices have changed in your court setting because of the pandemic? Does any long-lasting changes? We are still using uh, virtual for our in-office reviews prior to filing contempt. Uh, we like to do what we call an administrative review before we would consider contempt where the non-paying parent talks with a deputy prosecutor about their case and we try to come up with a case plan. Uh, a lot of those result in us finding out a reason that modification is appropriate. And so we're still doing those by Zoom because it is just a meeting with the attorney. There's no reason to have that person have to come into the to the building. Um, so that's one thing we may continue to always do virtually. Uh, also, we're still allowing our staff to work from home two days a week. So if the attorney is doing their work from home day, and that also happens to be a day we need someone to cover the administrative review hearings, they can just do those right from home. Uh, so the, the attorney doesn't have to come in the office necessarily for those either. So it benefits the public and our staff uh, for, for their ability to, to not have to come in on days they're able to work from home. Has there been any change in your modification process? Any long-lasting change in your modification process? So out of the pandemic, we really liberally accepted anyone's attempt to modify if it hadn't been modified in the last year because we didn't want someone to not get a modification if they really had lost their job. Uh, so we continue to be pretty liberal in our willingness to file a modification for either parent. They can still email documents in. They don't have to bring us documents and we're able to set those for hearings. We would like to go back to doing some of those modifications by uh, virtual it, because those we will draft a stipulation for the parties to sign, have them sign it, and then we'll submit that to the court and get a court order uh, without having to use court time, which then just allows us to use court time for things that we feel uh, we'd rather be face-to-face -face with the magistrate versus um, something that we think we can get done in the office uh, just with the parties. And that's a new practice where you have those stipulations for the modifications and just submit that to the court? Uh, it is an old practice that we changed uh, based on our ability to now do some of those things virtually instead of, uh, we used to set them like like appointments at a doctor's office for people to come in so that they met face-to-face -face with an attorney. And then we quit doing that during the pandemic. And now it's a thing that we can do virtually. Thank you so much for sharing your office's uh, digital adaptation or, or post-pandemic uh, journey. Um, I'm curious if, if you could identify a couple lessons learned throughout the process, uh, what would those be? What would you share with our listeners, especially with respect to uh, recommendations for what to keep moving forward? Yeah, thank you. In a lot of ways, I feel like the pandemic, you know, created problems that we already we're going to face in the next three to five years anyway. And it just caused us to move forward uh, here, you know, on location in St. Joe County, at least once or twice a year, we close the building due to a snow emergency and nobody comes to work. Uh, when I started here, we still got paper checks. And so when we had a snow emergency on a payday, uh, someone had to come in the building and get those paper checks and still deliver them to the folks who didn't have direct deposit set up yet. Uh, so after that, you know, we made sure everybody had direct deposit. Uh, now through this, you know, we have provided every staff member with a, a Surface or a laptop. We've gotten cell phones for all the caseworkers so that they can return calls uh, and work from home. Uh, and I, th I don't see any reason that we should ever expect our our 
employees to have to come back to the office full time when there's technology available for them to work from home. I think that's a thing that we should always offer, uh, especially in public service. It's a benefit uh, to have good employees want to stay here. Also, it allows the public to interact with us at the way that they would like to. Uh, they have really enjoyed being able to to email or call their caseworker and get a return phone call uh, off of uh, the caseworker working at home and not having to only come in face to face to meet with us. I think people should remember that you know technology is not the problem. the The Zoom hearing, the virtual hearing, is not a thing to be scared of. It is a tool to allow us to do our job to serve the public, uh, regardless of what is occurring outside. So if we had to close down, if there was a weather emergency that closed the building for a week, we know that we could still serve the public now in a way that we couldn't, you know, four years ago. I also think, you know, it's a just a reminder that not everything has to be done in person. Those things that you could do virtually or over the phone with a member of the public so that they don't have to miss work or get a babysitter, it, you know, our offices should be continuing to look for ways to do that uh, just to improve uh, the relationship. I think Susan discussed it perfectly. Uh, if someone can can use their lunch hour to do something with us and not have to miss work, especially if they may get points at work for missing or they're hourly and they just won't make up that money. Um, I'd much rather have them do a 15 minute phone call with me than drive all the way down here and look for parking downtown. And then lastly is just to continue to talk and collaborate with your court partners. Uh, you know, I think we have a great relationship with our courts in St. Joe County. Uh, it led to a lot of great conversations between all the judges and myself, and some of those included my elected prosecutor. Uh, just what's the best way to handle all of these issues so that we all get what we want out of it, which is court continue to run for emergency services for us, child support orders to get established so that our parents know that we're we're continuing to work their cases, even if we're unable to, to physically see them. Uh, and just continue to keep those relationships strong because I think it benefits the, the program overall. With the us embracing technology, and we always know that comes a, comes a negative side to this as well as to make sure information important information is not compromised or anything, keeping things secure and stuff. And I know uh, sometimes the Zoom was a little scary. Of course, we saw sometimes some people just were able to jump into somebody else's meeting (laughs) in that. And uh, so with this, did y'all have any issues of people jumping in on y'all's court hearings? We never had anyone jump into a court hearing they weren't supposed to. We used uh, specific Zoom links, and you could only get in if you had the Zoom link. Uh, And the caseworkers did remind the public, hey, if you're going to email me something, make sure that you've blacked out your social security number or you know how to do a secure email. Uh, and so, so we made sure we were, you know, letting them know, yes, you can email me, but make sure that you protect your information before you send it to us. Uh, because that was something we were concerned about, you know, by asking the public to do that. And then the other thing we did when our office was closed, but the building was open is I used one of the lock boxes that we had internally for, Uh, federal taxpayer information documents to store before we destroy them. We put that in the lobby so that if someone did want to drop off their, you know, enrollment packet or their pay stub, they could put it in a secure lockbox that only we would access the next day so that it was at least safe, even in the hallway in the building. Other states and cities, counties used Zoom as well. And because of its widespread use, that issue about security became apparent. My understanding is that Zoom did make many adjustments to its product and those security issues were addressed. But it's it's true that uh, that did scare people away from Zoom uh, and many people started to move on to other platforms. So uh, we heard people were using Microsoft Teams and... um, other platforms besides Zoom, and Microsoft Teams seemed to be a common one when the webinars were being taking place a few months ago. And security was a driving factor for trying other platforms. Well, I'll just throw it to the group. Were there any other lessons learned from anybody on our panel today that they wanted to share or at least to, to bring up? 
The the only other thing I w- I would make sure to that people are aware of when you are doing Zoom hearings uh, or virtual hearings, you don't know what you're stepping into in terms of the the person's home life. Uh, as we all are recording this podcast together, we're all in a virtual space, uh, and there have been, there were some stories across the country of deputies in different courts, not just in child support, uh, having concerns about the safety of the the person testifying, having concerns that the other person was also in the same house as them coaching their questions and answers. Uh, and so just a, just a reminder that if, if you have an attorney or a caseworker who has any questions about the safety of the person that is now participating or the truthfulness, you know, then you can, uh, you know, that's something you could have the sheriff do a wellness check. You could also uh, just ask the judge to cancel the hearing and, and proceed virtu- in person and ask for everyone to come to court in person because you're concerned that that maybe something is going on. Uh, so so it certainly opened us into new areas of concern for attorneys and staff uh, that we never had to worry about before. Uh, so I think that's a thing just to remember for your staff and coach them on a little bit is what to do in case the unexpected uh, does happen on a, on a hearing and have some ideas, you know, so they can be prepared for it. Do you want to talk a little bit, uh, Ethan, about backlogs? And did you have a backlog as a result of closing down shortly and going to virtual and all of that? And how has that worked out? Do you have a backlog today? So, yes, we absolutely had a backlog. We do not have a backlog today. We're caught back up. Um, you know, one of the things we made sure, like, especially in the area of modification, was getting the petition on file uh, so that the petition date could be secured uh, and we could let the person know, look, we may not be able to get you in front of the judge for a longer period of time, but your petition date's secured, so you'll get your modification back to this date. Uh, people were concerned about that. Uh, and the same with with the paternities, we didn't end up getting too far behind because we made that a priority and our judge uh, really helped us out in making sure that we had time to set paternity cases so that we weren't worried about the federal time limits um, or that someone needing an order established was waiting too long. Uh, So we prioritized those. And then enforcement hearings, uh, we felt like we weren't going to enforce cases judicially as hard during the during that time either, and so we did make sure we told the 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 payee, hey, we're not going to set a hearing right now, but we're going to talk to them administratively. We're going to find out why they're not working, and as soon as you know people are back to work, we will start setting those hearings for enforcement too. And we found for the most part the the public was very uh, agreeable to that when we communicated it to them, so that they weren't just wondering why they weren't getting court hearings set. Is your court currently practicing or requiring masks or social distancing or anything like that when it, for the in-person hearings? We are no longer requiring masks in St. Joe County. Um, we still have the courtroom set up in a way that people can have a little more distance than they did before, but there's no current mask requirement. Do you have much um, pushback from the public in that regard? Does anyone, do you, any of your parents come in and say, well, I don't, you know, I'm concerned about my health, anything like that? We have not, uh, we have not had that as a, as a complaint. Well, we want to thank our guests today, Julie Shepik, Susan Smith, Terry Jones, Elaine Sorensen, and Ethan McKinney for a great roundtable discussion of how the courts responded to the pandemic and how they used technology as a tool. Thank you to all our listeners. On behalf of Keith Lewis and myself, this has been On Location. Thank you very much to Keith and Tim for leading this discussion. Thanks, of course, to Jolie, Susan, Terry, Elaine, and Ethan for being our guests. And thanks, of course, to Tim Leitner, not only for moderating a great discussion, but for all the work he does in getting the episode ready for the broadcast. On Location is available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. 
We have a lot of great episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe and check out our previous work as well. We also appreciate your ratings, feedback, comments, and suggestions. If you have an idea for a topic or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us using the contact link on our website. On Location is a production of the NCIA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Tim Leitner and me. Thanks for joining me. I'm Joe Mamlin, and this has been On Location.